Thank you, Brother Smith. Glad for that. It is, uh, the Smiths are here um, getting ready to leave for Israel with us tomorrow. We'll have eight of us going, the Smiths and the Autrys and the Thomases and, and Christy and I will be going. We'll be uh, there leaving tomorrow and meeting up with the Falls Baptist group that will get in on Saturday. And so we're getting in and getting acclimated just a few hours before and then uh, we'll be returning April 3rd. So I greatly appreciate you praying and looking forward to the Lord working. I'll be preaching five times and um, Pastor Van Gelder, I think, will be preaching about that many times as well. And just uh, looking forward. I haven't been there, and uh, but I'm looking forward to it. I, I was trying to see if in, in anywhere in Bible history, if the Lord had been to Hawaii, if I could have gone there instead, and but couldn't find that part. So we're going to do this. And um, but then Bruce Humbert reminded me, God's walked all over this earth, and so. Yes, Hawaii's in the future, right, Brother Autry? <laughs> so, Revelation chapter 21. We're glad to have uh, Luigi and Andrea here tonight, and, and uh, very much uh, appreciate many who have prayed and know they have too and don't know all that the prayers that have gone into it. And I, since I won't be here Sunday, I did want to announce for those who didn't know the, the great excitement and miracle of God's answer to prayer and, uh, and the fact that Andrea is three months pregnant at this time. And so, and uh, excited for uh, the baby is affectionately known in the Ingram household as Baby Redmond. And uh, so we're going to have to work at adjusting the name when the baby comes because baby Redman is, is stuck. And, and so uh, we're, we're excited and thankful. We, uh, we remember not too long ago, this morning, uh, the, the, the answer to prayer or rejoicing answer to prayer in the morning. Uh, the fact that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and with the miscarriage there, and, and uh, now God has, has shown favor again. And so uh, this is just, there, I don't know of any time really, but I say often, uh, it, it's just great to have a church family to be able to go through things like this, and, and this one uh, is no exception. Revelation chapter 21, continuing our journey in our series of heaven, uh, looking at a glimpse into our new home tonight. And uh, you, you've bought a house, you've looked at a house, you've taken a tour of the house, and you often will call and can I, can I take a tour? And, and we have a little bit of a tour of what our new home will be like. That is, if you're saved and your, uh, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, well, we get a little bit of a glimpse tonight and get to take a tour with the Spirit of the living God. So let's stand together and we'll look in our text to be Revelation 21. We're going to look at Revelation 21 and 22, and I've got more than I have time for, so I will work to, to cut and give us precisely what we need in respect to heaven. And uh, so notice Revelation 21 because I think we have a summary here that will elaborate on these two chapters. But starting verse 1, Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life 
freely. Let's take a look tonight at our glimpse into our new home, the new Jerusalem. Thank you. Please be seated. Human history begins like a garden, but it ends in a city. A city that is like a garden paradise. In the Apostle John's day, Rome was the admired city. Yet, in God's estimation, Rome was compared to a harlot. Luke 16, 15 reminds us that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. However, the eternal city, this our new home is compared to a beautiful bride. Revelation 21 and verse 9. Because it's the eternal home for God's people. These verses in verse 5 and 6, I believe summarize chapter 21 and chapter 22. Notice in verse 5 and 6, when he makes this statement, Behold, I make all things new. Verse 6, it is done. And that summarizes what we're going to look at tonight. And there are some things that ought to encourage us, but some things that ought to motivate us. Now, what began in Genesis is brought to completion in Revelation. I want you to see, we'll have on the screen here, the, the comparison. In Genesis, heavens and earth were created in chapter 1 and verse 1. I hope you can see that. New heavens and the new earth are given in Revelation 21 and verse 1. So you have heaven and earth first created, but then you have the new heaven and the new earth. We're seeing the comparison. In chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 16, you have the sun that was created. But we're told in Revelation 21, 23, there's no need of the sun. In Genesis 1 and verse 5, the night is established. However, in Revelation 22 and verse 5, there's no night there. In chapter 1 and verse 10 of Genesis, the seas were created. Revelation 21 and verse 1, no more seas. In chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, the curse is announced. But in Revelation 22 and verse 3, no more curse. In Genesis 3 and verse 19 is when death enters into human history. In Revelation 21 and verse 4, there will be no more death in human history, in human future. In Genesis 3 and verse 24, man is driven from the garden. But in Revelation 22 and verse 14, man is restored to paradise. In Genesis 3 and verse 17, sorrow and pain begin. Revelation 21 and verse 4, there be no more tears or pain. I want you to see, first of all tonight, the citizens of this city. The citizens, the people of this new Jerusalem, this new heavenly home. We see in verse number 1 through 8, we read down to verse 6. Look at verse 7 and 8. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So John gives us there, verse 8, those that will not be there. But those that are described as the citizens of this new home are given to us. In verses 1 through 5, we're told that they are the people of God. They're God's people. See, the first heaven and earth were prepared for the first man, first woman, and their descendants. And God prepared everything for Adam and Eve. It was ready for them. He placed them in the garden. Unfortunately, our first parents sinned and it ushered in death and decay into God's beautiful world. But God promised his people a new heaven and a new earth. 
Isaiah 65 and verse 17, God promises that. Isaiah 66 and verse 22, God promises His people a new heaven and a new earth. So the old creation must make way for a new creation if God is going to be glorified. And by the way, that's why Adam and Eve were there to bring glory to God. And that's what the human race was going to do. And we're going to find that in the future, our new home is going to, uh, to replace this current one. In fact, Peter explained it as a uh, cleansing, as a renewing by fire. In 2 Peter 3, verse 10 through 13, this, this, uh, this world as we know it is going to be dissolved in fire and God's going to create a new home for us. He tells us there, we read, that there's no more sea in verse 1. The new earth will have a different arrangement. I'm not sure that, well, we, we, we do know it's not going to be an elimination of bodies of water. It's just not going to have the vast body of water. Three-fourths of our globe consists of water, but this won't be the case in the eternal home. In John's day, the sea would mean danger. It represented storms and separation. John himself, as he's writing this, is found on an island surrounded by water. So perhaps John's giving us more than just a geography lesson, but we're not going to have a, a, uh, a majority of ocean in that, in that day and time. Even the scriptures speak of a river, but it'll be a different river. And despite Scripture's description, the description in the Bible, it's really difficult to imagine what the eternal city will be like. We've got some description, but I'm telling you, it's still, I, I get an image in my mind, but I, there's, there's just no way to comprehend. Listen to some of the things that John says about it. In Revelation 21 and verse 27, he calls it a holy city. John 14, we saw this, the first message it's a prepared city. He calls it a beautiful city as a beautiful bride on her wedding day. And so these are just some amplifications by way of characteristics that are found in chapter 21 and 22. But I want to tell you the most important thing about this city is that God dwells with his people. The Bible gives an interesting record. I thought this to be a help just putting into perspective the dwelling places of God. First, God walked with man in the Garden of Eden. Then God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle and later in the temple. When Israel sinned, God had to depart from those dwellings. Later, Jesus Christ came to the earth and tabernacled among man. Today, God does not live in man-made temples, according to Acts 7, verse 48 through 50, but in the bodies of His people, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, and in the church, Ephesians 2, verse 21 and 22. You know that both in the tabernacle and the temple, the veil stood between man and God? The veil was torn when Jesus died and thus it opened a new and living way for God's people. Even though God dwells in believers today by His Spirit, we still have not begun to understand God or the fellowship with Him as to what it will be like in our new home in this new city. But one day we shall dwell in God's presence with joy and enjoy Him forevermore. See, this eternal city is so wonderful that the best way John found to describe it was by contrasting using the words, no more. In heaven, there'd be no more pain. Hard for you to imagine it. So he just says, I'm just telling you, that's the case. No more tears. No more sorrow. No more death. For many uh, of their number, John and, and the people of God in this day, they knew of what it meant to be tortured, to be persecuted. And so this brought significance to them. In every age, the hope of heaven 
has been God's intention to encourage his people in times of suffering. You know, the citizens of heaven, not only do we see that these people are God's people, but the citizens of heaven, notice in verse number six, they are a satisfied people. They're satisfied people. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, while we do not think that much about water, it was a major concern in John's day. No doubt John himself working in the Roman mines, he knew what it meant to be thirsty. The tortured saints of God throughout the ages would certainly identify with this wonderful promise from the Lord and that is free and abundant living water for all. These heavenly citizens, here's a third fact that we are told here in verse 7 and 8 is that they are overcoming people. He that overcometh shall inherit, verse 7, all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful, and this is a contrast to the overcomers, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and goes right down the lineup that will be in hell. But he's telling us we're overcomers. You know, he that overcometh, that phrase, he that overcometh. If you look it up, you'll find it's a key phrase in the book of Revelation. He that overcometh, Revelation 2 and verse 7. Revelation 2 and verse 11. 2 and verse 17. Chapter 2 and verse 26. Revelation 3 and verse 5. Revelation 3 and verse 12. Revelation 3 and verse 21. See, God's people, by way of our position in Christ, we are overcomers. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, because of our nature with Christ in us and us in Christ, our position in nature is that we are overcomers. After the great Chicago fire in 1871, the evangelist D.L. Moody went back to survey the ruins of his house. A friend came by and said to Mr. Moody, I hear you lost everything. Well, said Mr. Moody, you understood wrong. I have a good deal more left than I lost. His friend was somewhat perplexed and says, what do you mean? I didn't know that you were a wealthy man. Moody then opened his Bible and read to him Revelation 21 and verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. See, that's the right perspective of things. I met yesterday with Ken and Glenda Davis, and, um, and they're probably watching tonight as they often do, always do, very faithfully and regularly. And, um, and they informed me that they're having to experience another change, and time has come where They'll be moving to an assisted living home together. Meaning they're having to say goodbye to the nice house and things. But they both looked at me and said, Pastor, these are just things. I want you to see not only the citizens of that city, but I want you to notice the character of the city. What do we have up there for number two, Brother Chair? I think I have another word, the description of the city. The description of this place. We are told in verse 9 all the way to chapter 22 and verse 5. The eternal city is not only the home of the bride, it is the bride. Notice in verse number 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, Come hither and I will show thee the bride the Lamb's wife, and he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve 
foundations. In them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof and 140 and four cubits according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. And, a, and the building of the wall of it was of jasper. And the city was pure gold, likened to clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite. It's not the lemon drink there is crystallite. The eighth burial, the ninth Tobaz, the tenth a Chrysophorus, the eleventh a Jacinth, the twelfth an Amethyst. I have yet to get some of those for my wife and so they are not going to get them because I can't pronounce them. In verse 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Oh, there's one I recognize. And every several gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass and I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it and the city had no need of the sun neither of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God did lighten it and the Lamb is the light thereof and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day for there shall be no night there and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations and there shall be in no wise enter into it anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh the lie but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life and he showed me a pure river of water of life clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb and in the midst of the street of it and on the either side of the river was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads and there shall be no night there and they need no candle neither light of the sun for the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. What a description. The eternal city, again, remember, is not just a home of the bride. It is a bride. See, a city is not the buildings, it's the people. It was a holy and heavenly city. We saw there in chapter 21 that John saw as it descended from heaven to earth. And John's description, it truly staggers the imagination, even accepting the fact that a great deal of it is, is things that we can fathom because there are some familiarity with these things, but we've not seen them in their purest state. Notice one of the things in the description is the glory of God. The glory of God has appeared in different places in and throughout history. God's glory dwelled in the tabernacle and in the temple as we mentioned earlier. Today His glory dwells in believers and in the church. But for all of eternity the glory of God will be seen in His holy city. It is the only light that the city is going to need. The glory of God. But notice too we talked about here that we just read the pattern of the city. Foundations, walls, and gates. When he says foundations, um, he's referring to something that speaks of permanence. Remember what the people of God, many of these patriarchs, what they were accustomed to? They were pilgrims, strangers, living in tents. And here he's reminding them, Someday for all of eternity, you'll have something permanent. Those who have been in the military have known at times what it's like to have to travel and be in different places 
never, never having any, any roots. But he's talking here of the permanence. He speaks of the walls and gates. Walls and gates remind them of protection. God's people will never have to fear any enemies. Angels, too, will be at the gates and they will act as sentries to protect. In this city, saints of the old covenant and the new covenant will be united. He speaks of the 12 gates. I think identifying with the 12 tribes. He speaks of the 12 foundations with the 12 apostles. Including the tribe of Levi, there were actually 13 tribes. And including Paul, there were 13 apostles. But when John listed the tribes in Revelation 7, both Dan and Ephraim were omitted, perhaps indicating that we should not press these matters too, uh, too literally. But John is assuring us, that all of God's people, all of the, the children of God will be included, all of them, in the city one day. Now, the measurements of the city, this is, this is somewhat staggering. John measured the earthly Jerusalem. That's in Revelation chapter 11. But now he's invited to measure the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city. The measurements are staggering. The city's exact dimensions are measured by an angel and reported to be equivalent to about 1,500 miles in length, in width, and in height. It says that it's four square. That means it's equal on all sides. The fact that it is equal on all sides is indicating of many things perhaps, but one thing I think it indicates the perfection of God's eternal city. Nothing is out of order. Nothing is out of balance. But the city is presented as a 1,500 miles in all directions. Now, Scripture emphasizes that these are man's measurements in Revelation 21 and verse 17. Now, let's just, I have to go off of a comparison. What does 1,500 miles look like? And I have to do that with just a few inches. I have to have a comparison. But a metropolitan area of this size in the middle of the United States would stretch from Canada to Mexico and from the Appalachian Mountains to the California border. The New Jerusalem is more square footage than anyone could ask for. This should address any concerns that some might have that Heaven won't be large enough to contain all of the redeemed at one time. Now, the ground level of the city will be nearly 2 million square miles. This is 40 times bigger than England, 15,000 times bigger than London. It is 10 times as big as France or Germany and far larger than India. And remember, this is just ground level. This is approximately the distance from New York City to Wichita, Kansas. Now, can you imagine a city that's the city that is that colossal? It would take a trip of about 6,000 miles just to travel around it. Now, what's more magnificent is that this will have skyscrapers, perhaps, or buildings, that will extend up into space nearly 1,500 miles. Because it's the same amount of mileage from top to bottom. Henry Morris in his book, The Revelation Record, did the math. He pointed out that if we say 20 billion people live there and their homes and property took up merely 25% of the city's space, each individual, this is if there's 20 billion, would have a cubicle block of about 75 acres of space on each face. The rest of the colossal city would involve streets and parks and public buildings and the like. Given the dimensions of this 1,500 mile cube, if the city consisted of different levels, then each level, if it had a spacey, 12 feet high on a single floor, that would mean that there could be a building in this new city, this new home of ours, that would be 600 
600,000 stories. Could you imagine taking an elevator to 600,000th floor? You probably would have to have a special key card to get to that floor. If they were on different levels, billions could occupy the new Jerusalem with many square miles per person. See, the home of God's people is going to be large and roomy. These are a lot of speculations here just based upon the dimension. But you do your math. You do your figuring. How can the city's construction not fascinate us? The walls are jasper, which is a clear crystal. But the city itself will be made of pure gold as clear as crystal. The light of God's glory will shine throughout the city, resembling the, a, a huge, incredible Holy of Holies. Building foundations are usually underground. You remember when you saw the Twin Towers, when they came down, they discussed the, the foundations that went several stories into below the, the surface. But these foundations would not only be visible, but they're going to be beautifully garnished with precious stones. Each separate foundation will have its own jewel and the blending of the colors will be magnificent as God's light shines through. See, our God is a God of beauty and He will lavish His beauty on the city that He is preparing for His people. The pearl gates. The pearl gates of the heavenly city, according to Revelation 21 verse 25, they'll never be closed because there will be no danger of anything entering that would disturb or defile her citizens. John does note that some items were missing from the city, but the absence of these items is to bring glory to God. He says there will be no temple, since God's presence will indwell the entire city. And secular and sacred will be indistinguishable in heaven. The sun and moon will be absent since the Lord's light is going to be the city light. And there will never be any night. Isaiah 60 and verse 19. Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5 that we read. We move in, inside the city to discover that it's like a beautiful garden. Perhaps reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. There were four rivers in Eden, according to Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. But there's only one river in the heavenly city. Ezekiel saw a purifying river flowing from the temple. And it certainly has that millennial scene that is spoken of in Ezekiel 47. But this river will flow directly from God's throne. The very source of all purity. Man was prohibited from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and prevented from eating of the tree of life. But in the eternal home, man will have access to the tree of life. The river and the tree symbolize abundant life in the glorious city. He says no more curse. Well, that takes us back to Genesis 3 where the curse began. Interestingly, even the Old Testament closes with, with the statement in Malachi 4 and verse 6, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. But here, no more curse. One day, no more curse. What will we do in heaven for all of eternity? Well, one of the things we will certainly do, in Revelation 22 and verse number 3, it tells us we shall serve Him. We're going to serve Him. His servants shall serve Him, Revelation 22, 3. I want to say this ought to be a great encouragement to us. For in heaven, our service will be perfect. As we seek to serve the Lord here on earth, we're constantly handicapped by sin, weakness. And all these hindrances, however, will be gone when we get to glory. Perfect service in a perfect environment. What will this service be? We're not really told. Nor do we need to know right now. I think it's sufficient that we know what God wants of us to do today. Our faithfulness in life prepares us for a higher service in heaven. In fact, there are some Bible students that think that we shall have access to the vast universe and perhaps be sent on special missions to other places, but it's really useless to speculate because God has not seen fit to fill in those details. Not only shall we be servants in heaven, but we shall also be kings. 
We shall reign forever and ever. It speaks of the sharing of Christ's authority. John closed his book by reminding us that we have responsibilities today because we are going to heaven. I want you to see the, the third point here. And that is what our responsibilities are of the city, concerning the city. What do we do until we enter this city? The Lord gives us glimpses into our new home to provide us with more than just information regarding a future destination. The Lord's giving us information concerning our new home to give us motivation for right now. Knowing what we've read, and we've just skimmed and we could park and on so many of these things. But knowing what we do know now, it should make a difference in our lives. The vision of the heavenly city motivated the patriarchs of old as they walked with God and served Him. Listen to Hebrews 11 and verse 10. For He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed them, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that, that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. See, knowing that He was returning to the Father, that is, Jesus, Jesus was also encouraged as He faced the cross. Did you know that? The cross was something that was a symbol of curse and it became the place where Christ was cursed for your sin and mine. But he was encouraged going to the cross because of the, the, the thought and the motivation of returning to his Father. Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. If it encouraged Jesus, why shouldn't it encourage us? See, the promise of heaven should not result in us a complacency and a carelessness, but it should give us a motivation to fulfill all of our spiritual duties. And so what would these Duties, but what would the responsibility be? Here's three. We must keep God's word. We must keep God's word. Notice in verse number six, and he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that, what's the word? Keepeth, look at it. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. He's telling us, and goes down to verse number 11, and he says in verse number 18 and 19, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of this book, uh, from the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. See, John wrote the word of God and God's words are called in Revelation 19 and verse 11, faithful and true. The same God who spoke through the prophets also spoke through the apostle John. And think with me, go back to the Sunday night services and we're talking about the authority of the word of God. And, and here we're finding that if you deny what John wrote, then you must deny the prophets as well. Now when he says in verse number 7, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy 
of this book, what does it mean to keep the sayings? Basically, it means to guard, watch over, preserve intact. We must not add to the word of God, take away from it. This is the responsibility, and especially it's a great responsibility in light of the return of Jesus. You see in Revelation 22, notice verse number 6. He says, or excuse me, verse number uh, uh, 7. Behold, I come, what's the word? Quickly. And what that means is quickly come to pass. Now the church has expected Jesus to return since the days of the apostle. And he has not yet come. But when John's prophecies begin to be fulfilled, they're going to happen very quickly. There will be no delay. John, in verse number 8, he says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Now this has happened before with John. But John is so overwhelmed again in the book of Revelation by what he saw and heard that he fell down and he worshiped the angel that was speaking to him. So the angel gives John three pieces of advice. Notice in verse number nine, then saith he unto me, see thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book worship God. And he saith unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Three things he says. Well, number one, do not worship the angels. That's what he's telling him. John, don't do it. The second thing he says is, John, you worship God. And the third thing he says is, do not seal up this book. That is the revelation. Now, if you remember the book of Daniel... Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, Daniel was commanded to seal his book. Why? Because it was not quite time. Time was not ready yet. John's book, if you remember, is called, what is John's book? This big book of John called? The Revelation. This is an unveiling. This is the apocalypse. This is the unveiling. Revelation 1 and verse number 1. And so the angel says, God doesn't want you to seal this one, John. Now, notice Revelation 22 and verse 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. Someone asks, does this mean that God does not want men to repent or change their ways? No, that's not what it means because that'd be contrary to the message of Revelation in and of itself. And be contrary to the message of the gospel. But when the angel says this, it must be understood in light of the repeated statement in verse number 7 as well as in verse number 12. What does he say in verse 7? Behold, I come quickly. Verse 12, behold, I come quickly. And the statement in Revelation 22, notice in verse number 10, he says, for the time is at hand. And so what he's telling us is simply in light of those things, when the prophecies begin to be fulfilled and the time is at hand, he's saying, I believe that Jesus Christ's coming will occur so quickly, men will not have time to change their minds. You'll not have time to repent. You're not going to have time to get saved. You're not going to have time to get right with God. And so Revelation 22 and verse 11 is a solemn warning that your decision determines your character. And your character, in a great respect, determines your destiny. See, suffering saints might ask, is it worth it to live a godly, dedicated life? And John's reply is, you better believe it is. Jesus is returning. He will reward you. We were just talking the other day about some of these, uh, since, you know, COVID and, and these different uh, government grants and, and the, 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 um, your, the dependents within the home had gotten X number of dollars. And 
And we were saying, we didn't get the last one. We didn't get the last. I don't know if they stopped before they got to I in the, in the list. And, you know, you may get overlooked in the government of this world. You will never be overlooked by God. He's not going to miss what you do. We have the responsibility, a second responsibility, until Jesus comes, until we get to the new home. We have the responsibility of serving the Lord. Verse 12 through 14, And behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. You notice that phrase there, my reward is with me, verse 12. It implies that God is mindful. He's mindful of your sacrifice. He's mindful of your suffering. He's mindful of your service. Nothing is ever done in vain that is done for the Lord. If you and I have done certain things for our advantage, oh, that might get overlooked. In fact, it'll get addressed. But if you do what you do for Him, He'll never miss it. At the judgment seat of Christ, believers will be judged. And they're going to be judged based upon who it was you were depending upon each moment of your Christian life. In Revelation 22 and verse 13, I believe is a great encouragement to everyone and anyone who seeks to serve the Lord. Notice again, I'm Alpha and Omega. Your boss isn't. I'm not. The mayor's not. But Jesus is. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. What God starts, He'll finish. For He's the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The first and the last, that's in keeping with what Paul said, Philippians 1 and verse 6, that what he's begun, he will complete. Here's a third thought, and this is, I think, our last one here. I think we may have one more uh, responsibility, but we must keep our lives clean. Until Jesus comes, we must keep our lives clean. Verse 15, for without our dogs and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. See, our obedience to God's work is a word is a mark of being a disciple of Jesus. Titus 2 verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us what? That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Verse 13, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, our Lord has titles all through the Bible. In Revelation 22 and verse 16, these are the most interesting titles. Notice again, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the, notice this one, root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. You have the root and the star. The root is buried in the ground where no one can see it, but the star is in the heavens where everyone can see it. He says of the root that he's the root and he's the offspring of David. That's Jesus' Jewish national name. But the bright and morning star, that's his universal name. One speaks of humility, the other speaks of majesty and glory. As the root of David, Jesus Christ brought David into existence. But as the offspring of David, Jesus came into this world, born a Jew from David's line. Both the deity and the humanity of Jesus are evident here. The morning star announces dawn's soon arrival. Jesus Christ will come for his church as the morning star. See, because God's people look for their Lord's return, we ought to be motivated to keep our lives pure clean. 1 John 2 verse 28 
And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And here's the last thought. What should we be doing? What's our responsibility until we get to that city? The last one is, according to verse 17, we must keep expecting Jesus Christ to return. Verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Verse 20, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know, three times in this closing chapter, John wrote verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20, where Jesus says, I come quickly. I come quickly. I come quickly. But he's delayed his return for 2,000 years. Yes, he has. And I think Peter tells us why he's done so. 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 and go practically through the whole chapter of 2 Peter 3. He's telling us that God wants to give this sinful world opportunity to repent and be saved and join us in this new city. In the meantime, the Spirit of God through the church, which is the bride, calls for Jesus to come. So we see in verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And the bridegroom enters into her home and says in verse number 20, even so come Lord Jesus. The truth of the matter is if you're saved, there's only one of two ways you'll get there. You'll get there by death. You'll get there by the rapture. I'm, I'm hoping for the rapture. I, I'm not on mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I and so I, I'm, I'm holding out for the rapture if I can. Dr. Childs is, that's for sure. We know that. <laughs> but until he comes, we must be inviting the lost to trust Christ and drink the water of life. Until he comes, the church should live in expectancy of Christ's soon return. It ought to provoke our heart to stay pure and to stay broken for the lost around us. When a Christian says, this is my friend, these are my friends, but they're lost and going to hell and it bothers us not. Oh, you're not living the way a Christian should. Christians should live looking forward to their father coming to get them. Looking forward to the Savior coming to get them. We want to tell others of the grace of God when we are expecting His return. A true understanding of Bible prophecy. It should motivate us to obey God's word, to share God's good news. And then say, even so come Lord Jesus. Let me ask you, are you ready? Let's stand together please.